Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. For more than 35 years, we at the Cancer Support Community have been a relentless ally for anyone impacted by cancer. We help individuals manage the realities of this disruptive disease and get back to normal. Whether accessing our free services in person or at one of our 175 locations online or over our toll-free helpline, you are getting a team of licensed professionals providing patient navigation, financial counseling, genetic counseling, pediatric support, and more. Well, over the years, we've certainly tackled some tough topics on the show, and today's episode definitely ranks as one of the more complex. Today, we're going to learn about glioblastoma, an aggressive type of cancer that can occur in the brain or spinal cord. The tumor and treatments can impact both the body and cognitive functioning and may even cause changes in personality. Part of what makes this cancer diagnosis complex are the number of different doctors and specialists beyond the traditional oncology team involved in caring for the patient because of the impact on the body's neurological system. Glioblastoma, or since that's a little bit of a mouthful, um, I'll use the acronym GBM to stand for glioblastoma, is the most common type of brain and spinal cord cancer among adults. It's a fairly rare diagnosis, but chances are you've heard about it because of media coverage of folks like uh, uh, Bo Biden, the son of Vice President Joe Biden, and and Senator uh, John McCain, who both uh, faced uh, the diagnosis. I'm extremely uh, grateful to have with us today two experts who will help us understand the many challenges and also shed light on new treatments and approaches that are being used to treat the disease. We're joined today by Dr. Patrick Wynn of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and later we'll be joined by Jennifer Cerventi of the University of Rochester Wilmot Cancer Center. but let's take a minute to meet uh, Dr. Wen. He is the director of the Center for Neuro-Oncology at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston and professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School. He serves as co-primary investigator of the National Cancer Institute-supported Adult Brain Tumor Com- Consortium and is a member of the steering committee of the Response Assessment in Neuro-Oncology Working Group. Dr. Wen's research focuses on novel treatments of brain tumors, especially targeted molecular agents. He's authored or co-authored hundreds of peer-reviewed articles that have been published in journals such as Lancet Oncology, Journal of Clinical Oncology, and the New England Journal of Medicine. He served as president of the Society for Neuro-Oncology and Society for Neuro-Oncology Executive Editor of Neuro-Oncology. Dr. Wen, thanks for being on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Wen, before we dive into our discussion about GBM, if you can just take a minute, take us sort of maybe back to some of our some of our science classes and talk about the brain, because it is truly a wonder. It controls emotion, memory, and movement. Can you just give us a, a, a quick refresh on the, uh, the scope of the role of the brain and spinal cord in the human body? The brain controls everything we do. It's the seat of our intelligence, our emotions, and, and who we really are. So it, it, it's an, an organ three, that weighs three pounds in weight. It has 80 billion neurons, and it controls every function uh, in our everyday lives. So it, it, when this is affected by tumors, it changes our personality, our ability to think and interact with our friends and family, our ability to work. 
And then it also affects our motor and sensory function, our walking. So it's really critical in everything we do and who we are. Well, um, and with that, Dr. Wen, obviously this you know, can become a challenging diagnosis, but now that we understand how vital the brain is, can you explain to us what is uh, glioblastoma or GBM and how can it interfere with the brain's or body's functioning? Glioblastoma is the most common malignant primary brain tumor, so it's a tumor that comes from the brain itself. It uh, comes from tumor stem cells. So in, in the brain, there are stem cells that gives rise to the nerve cells, the neurons, and the supporting cells, the glia. And these stem cells, if they go bad and they develop molecular changes, they eventually start growing uncontrollably and become a glioblastoma. These tumors invade throughout the brain, and so it's impossible to take out the tumor completely with surgery. But it's also unusual in that, unlike most cancers, it doesn't spread to other parts of the body. So it's only in the brain or spinal cord. The problem with these tumors is that they're incredibly hard to treat. They're very resistant to treatment with radiation and chemotherapy. And the molecular changes are very uh, heterogeneous. So there isn't a single molecular target usually that uh, is present in other cancers and allows other cancers to be more easily treated. Mm. These tumors push on the surrounding brain and so it causes injury to the nerve cells and by doing that, it causes neurologic damage. Mm. It affects brain function, strength, sensation, gait, and can cause seizures. All of those things. Yeah, let's get to that, uh, Dr. Wen. Um, can you walk us through some of the common symptoms a person with, with GBM might experience? And that certainly you mentioned, and I know seizures can be one that's unpredictable, scary for the patient, scary for the, for the loved ones um, witnessing that. Tell us about that and other symptoms. I think, as you said, seizures are, are probably the most difficult symptom for patients to have because they're well one day and then the next day they have a seizure and their whole life has changed. This occurs in about a third of patients and can range from little seizures where you just have an abnormal smell to the generalized seizures where you lose consciousness and you shake uncontrollably. These tumors can also cause bad headaches that often wake people up in the morning. They can cause weakness and numbness. It can affect balance and then very often it affects cognitive function and personality. Can you just um, tell our, our listeners what cognitive function is, Dr. Wen? It affects our ability to think, so our ability to concentrate, to remember, to process information. And so sometimes patients will complain, or the families will notice over the prior two or three months before they're diagnosed that they're having more trouble at work they're having more difficulty focusing on whatever they're supposed to be doing. And often, depending on the location of the tumor, their personality changes, often becoming flatter. Dr. Wen, besides um, seizures, are there other symptoms that uh, a patient might um, experience? I know we had a family friend who went through this, and I know he had some pressure and ringing in his ear that wouldn't go away. What are some of the other symptoms that folks might experience? The most common symptoms are bad headaches that often wake the patient up in the mornings, weakness, numbness, trouble walking, and then also change in personality and change in their ability to think, to 
the ability to focus or remember things. And very often their, their affect becomes flatter and mm-hmm. they're less interactive. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Wen, tell us, so some, some of those symptoms, you, we have a, a broad range of symptoms here. Some of those could maybe a seizure. Could You could think the person might have epilepsy. Some of that forgetfulness, you might think they have maybe some kind of dementia. What, are, what is the diagnostic process for glioblastoma? How do you determine that that's, in fact, what's uh, causing those symptoms? You're absolutely right. So that's why it, sometimes it takes a while for these tumors to be diagnosed because these symptoms can also occur in other conditions. But eventually, um, the, the primary care physician or a neurologist will obtain a brain MRI scan, and it's usually based on the MRI scan that you get a diagnosis of, of a tumor. Got it. Got it. And and then can you tell us, Dr. Wen, how, uh, you know, we a lot of times with cancer, we hear about stage one, stage two. I know with the glioblastoma, uh, the, 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 uh, the cancer is classified by grade. Can you just tell us about the grades? So there are four grades of gliomas. These are the um, primary brain tumors that glioblastoma is part of. Grade 1 tumors are usually in children and are generally benign. And can, if you can take out the tumor, you're cured. Glioblastoma is at the other end. It's a grade 4 tumor, and it's the most serious. And then there are grade 2 and 3 tumors that tend to occur in younger patients and have a generally better prognosis. Glioblastomas don't spread, so the other staging that is relevant for cancers don't apply to glioblastomas. So patients with a diagnosis of glioblastoma will, will have that diagnosis and it'll be a WHO grade 4 tumor. Got it. Got it. Um, I, I also know that the location of the cancer is important. You said this is often not, not operable, but can you tell us about, about that and about um, how you sort of assess where uh, the tumor is located and what, what, the, what are the implications of that? The tumor can occur anywhere in the brain. There are many areas where you can take out most of the tumor that you can see, although you always leave some tumor cells behind. But if the tumor is in the speech area or is in the motor area, then taking out a lot of the tumor will hurt the patient and leave them with significant deficits. So in those situations, the surgeon usually just does a biopsy and takes out enough tissue to make the diagnosis and for molecular studies, but not to hurt the patient. Got it. Got it. Um, we are um, coming up uh, towards our first break here, uh, uh, Doctor, when we have a couple more minutes remaining. But I, I want to ask you, I know more and more um, patients are being encouraged, encouraged to have their tumors tested, biomarker testing, next generation sequencing. Is this something that's important for patients with GBM? And can you talk to us a little bit about that? There are two important biomarkers for GBM. One is something called IDH, isocitrate dehydrogenase. Doing that test and showing that the tumor has that mutation means that it's a much slower-growing tumor with a much better prognosis. So testing for IDH mutation is important. The other molecular marker is something called MGMT. This predicts whether the tumor will respond to the chemotherapy so a tumor that has a methylated MGMT promoter will respond to chemotherapy, and those patients generally do well. Those patients with an unmethylated MGMT promoter will usually not respond very well to chemotherapy and unfortunately won't do as well. 
So the IDH and MGMT are the two most important markers. If possible, it's also useful to do more extensive molecular testing to look for other molecular targets because occasionally there may be specific molecular changes that could potentially be treated with drugs. Can you can you tell us more about those tests, Doctor Wen? What kind of what kind of tests are they? Are they a are they a are they a blood test? Are they a tissue test? Are they is you know are there multiple tests that are performed? Can you just take another minute to tell us about that? So these are all tests on the tumor. the The IDH is a very simple test. They just stain the tumor, and if it's positive, it lights up uh, with with the protein. The other two tests are molecular tests that are done on the tumor. And with the, um, the NGS uh, next generation sequencing panel, what usually happens is the tumor is tested for a number of genes. It can range from 20 to 30 to, to several hundred genes. And by doing this, you identify all the major molecular changes that are contributing to the tumor growing. Most of the time, those changes are things that you can't do anything about, but occasionally you'll find molecular changes that could potentially be target, targeted with uh, molecular drugs. And so that's the main reason for, for doing the more extensive uh, NGS panel testing. And when you say tested on the tumor, that means you do a biopsy to take out a tissue sample? Yeah, you have to take out the, you have to take out the biopsy. Got it. Got it. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Um, we are talking today about uh, uh, glioblastoma. We have Dr. Uh, Wen with us. He's the director of the Center for Neuro-Oncology at Dana-Farber uh, Cancer Institute in Boston and um, professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School. Um, he also serves as the co-primary investigator of the National Cancer, I- Cancer Institute-supported Adult Brain Tumor Consortium and a member of the steering committee of the um, Response Assessment in Neuro-Oncology Working Group um, about a, we're talking today about a tough tumor, talking today about a, a pretty tough tumor to diagnose, um, a glioblastoma, tough to diagnose and, and certainly tough to treat. We've got a lot more to cover with Dr. Wen. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. NovaCure is a global oncology company working to extend survival in some of the most aggressive forms of cancer through the development and commercialization of its innovative therapy, Tumor Treating Fields. Tumor Treating Fields is a cancer therapy that uses electric fields tuned to specific frequencies to disrupt solid tumor cancer cell division. NovaCure's commercialized products are approved for the treatment of adult patients with glioblastoma and malignant pleural mesothelioma. NovaCure has ongoing or completed clinical trials investigating tumor-treating fields in multiple other solid tumor cancers. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, 
The Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaides, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. Today we're talking about glioblastoma, GBM for sure. GBM is a type of brain and spinal cord cancer. Helping us get a better understanding of this rare cancer uh, is Dr. Patrick Wen of Dana-Farber. Dr. Wen uh, is the director of the Center for Neuro-Oncology at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston and professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School. His research focuses on novel treatments of brain tumors, especially targeted molecular agents. Dr. Wen, before we jump back in, would you tell our listeners about your medical specialty, about neuro-oncology, and really what led you to that uh, area of medicine? Neuro-oncology is focused on treating tumors, uh, both in the brain and spinal cord, as well as uh, the neurologic complications of cancer. So if cancer spreads to the nervous system or if there are side effects in the nervous system from treatments of cancer... That's what neuro-oncology is. I think I was drawn to this because it's an area that has such poor treatments and it's such a devastating set of conditions. So I, I wanted to do whatever I can to, to help the patients with this kind of problem. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. We're, we're thankful that we have people like you who have been drawn to this and, and uh, particularly drawn to it because um, of the difficulty of it and of the challenges of it. So we thank you and applaud you for pursuing this area and doing such amazing research to help improve the, the length and quality of life uh, uh, of patients. Um, Dr. Wen, my understanding is that some of the body's built-in protections that's just really one of the reasons GBM is so hard to treat and cure. Can you talk about that and talk about the unique challenges that, that uh, glioblastoma presents? The brain is normally protected by something called the blood-brain barrier. This prevents uh, chemicals from the environment from hurting the brain. And so normally this is a very good thing. But in terms of treatment, it becomes a barrier because... 90 to 95% of all cancer drugs are prevented by the blood-brain barrier from getting into the brain. And so it means most of the drugs that we have for treating other cancers just don't work for brain tumors. And so that's one major barrier. Another major barrier is that the tumors are driven by multiple molecular uh, alterations. 
And so you can imagine that if you have a molecular drug that blocks one molecular pathway, but you don't block the other pathways, then it's not enough to stop the tumor from growing. And then the other problem with brain tumors is that because it's in the brain and you can't do aggressive surgery, a lot of the tumor is often left behind. So these are some of the reasons why it's so hard to treat brain tumors. Got it. Got it. Um, Dr. Dr. Wink, so let, let's get into the treatment a little bit for glioblastoma. Can you tell us what some of the treatments are, how they work, what the side effects are? Um, you know, what is the general treat, treatment approach to a GBM? So the first step is always surgery. The surgery takes out the tumor to it helps improve the symptoms, and it provides tissue for the pathologist so they can make the diagnosis of a glioblastoma and also to hopefully have enough tissue for mo- to study the molecular changes. You have to take out at least 80% or more of the tumor to have any impact on the patient's life. After the patient recovers from surgery, they undergo radiation therapy to the tumor plus a small uh, area of surrounding brain. This is uh, done over six weeks, five days a week for six weeks, and it's usually done in combination with a low dose of chemotherapy. The chemotherapy is called temozolomide, and it's actually very well tolerated. Giving the chemotherapy with the radiation helps the radiation work a a little better. And then a month uh, uh, after radiation therapy, there's a month break, and then patients receive the chemotherapy, temozolomide, again, five days a month for, for six months. And then there is a newer treatment called tumor treating fields that's used by some patients. These are electrodes placed on the patient's scalp that they have to wear all the time, and it helps uh, kill the tumor cells to some extent. So that is the standard therapy for glioblastomas, and unfortunately hasn't changed very much for quite a while. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so basically what I hear you saying is that we don't have any cure for this. So if we don't have a cure, we always sort of talk to our patients about understanding the goals of therapy. So if, if with no cure, what are the goal? What are the goals of this therapy? Is it to relieve symptoms, to extend life? You know, what, tell us about that a little bit. I think especially with the surgery, it's to relieve symptoms. And then the, 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 all the other treatments kill off some of the tumor cells and the hope is that it would keep the tumor quiet for a good period of time so that the patient can resume their life and, and have some quality in that life. Unfortunately, the tumor almost always does come back after a period of time, and, and then the patient will require other treatments. And when you say other treatments, tell us about that. Sometimes they can do surgery again. Um, there's a drug called Avastin that's FDA approved for uh, glioblastomas that come back. But because the treatment is really not as good as we would all like, both for recurrent tumors and even for newly diagnosed tumors, I think the general recommendation is for patients to consider looking for clinical trials, if at all possible. And if there's a reasonable trial within uh, uh, that's nearby to where the patient lives, then the recommendation is usually to try to consider joining those clinical trials. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So just tell our listeners just quickly, uh, what, what is a clinical trial so that they understand? A clinical trial is um, a study where they're looking at new 
uh, therapies for these tumors. So to determine whether these therapies are useful or not, they have to um, be studied in, in, in the context of a trial. The, the trials are of three types. Initially, when the agent is first introduced, we don't know the correct dose of the drug, and so you have to do a phase one study where you're trying to find the best dose of the drug to treat the patient. Then there's a phase two trial where everybody gets the drug at the dose we think is the right dose to see how useful it is. And then this goes on to a phase three trial where you compare that, that new treatment to standard of care to see if it's better than the standard of care. And if it is, then that drug gets FDA approved and it becomes available mm-hmm. to everybody. Mm-hmm. I think it's important, Dr. Wen, that we clarify for our listeners. I think a lot of times when consumers hear about clinical trials, they think about a study where you either get the drug or you get a sugar pill or a placebo. I think I want to make it clear for folks that we're treating, we're, that folks are going to get treatment on a clinical trial for this. They just might get the standard of care treatment or maybe the standard of care plus or a new therapy that's in development, correct? Yes, that's, that's exactly right. It, it, it wouldn't be appropriate for patients Ethical, to get nothing. sure. That's right. The worst right. they, they would get standard of care. That's right. That's right. And I think it's important for folks to understand that. Um, as we, uh, we've got a, a little bit left in the show, um, I just want to go back to this, um, to this idea of a sort of biomarker testing. And tell, Dr. Wynn, where are we going with the treatment of glioblastoma? What, what are your hopes for the future? What is being studied? You know, where, where, where's that glimmer of hope for GBMs? I think we understand the molecular changes in glioblastomas much better than we used to. And over the past year, for the first time, there are small groups of glioblastoma with specific molecular changes that are responding to treatment, things like the BRAF mutation or the NTREC fusion. But from the majority of glioblastomas, the targeted treatments are not working as well. I think the other area where there's tremendous interest is trying to stimulate the, the body's immune system to fight the tumor in in what's called immunotherapy. This can be achieved either by using drugs or vaccines. And then with glioblastomas, increasingly, there are also trials with viruses. These are genetically engineered viruses that are injected into the tumor. The viruses kill the tumor cells, but also induce a very potent inflammatory response. And that inflammatory response can also help uh, fight the tumor. So there's a combination of uh, different approaches that are being examined now in clinical trials. And I think, you know, certainly compared to several years ago, I think the field is a much more hopeful place. And mm-hmm, some of these mm-hmm. treatments are starting to show some benefit. Um, and Dr. Wen, t- t- tell us about the importance of a second opinion when you talk about these trials. Are these trials happening mainly at the big academic centers? Um, is it important to get a, a second opinion? We, you know, we, how, do, how do folks sort of find the, the top places and, and understand where these trials might be available and have that conversation? I think it depends on the trial. Some trials are only at academic centers, but there are some trials, especially the ones sponsored by the National Cancer Institute, that are at many centers around the country. I think it's always important to ask your doctor if there are trials around and, you know, whether there's a nearby major center that you can be referred to, to to see if you can join these trials. I think I think that is a very important part of the treatment. 
in terms of getting second opinions, it depends in part on your comfort with your doctor and also um, whether that doctor focuses on brain tumors or whether mm-hmm. this is just one of many cancers that they treat. Because if they're not uh, focused on brain tumors, then sometimes it's useful just to get advice from a, a neuro-oncologist mm-hmm. who may be a little bit more knowledgeable about these tumors. And they can work mm-hmm. in collaboration with your local doctor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So really, uh, being your uh, being your own best advocate, really seeking out those opinions, understanding where the experts are, understanding where the trials uh, are available. I think these are all sort of important uh, tips for, for for folks to know and understand. And again, if they're experiencing any of the the symptoms, to certainly pursue that and make sure that they're getting the proper uh, proper diagnosis, you know, whatever that may be um, and whatever that may look like. Um, Dr. Wen, we're so honored to have you um, on the show today. You, you certainly are one of the world's leading experts in this area. You've really um, given us some good background and shed some light on this. Um, we're grateful for your time today. Dr. Wen is the director of the Center for Neuro-Oncology at Dana-Farber and professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Wen, thank you uh, for joining us, and we will be right back for a conversation with Jennifer Cervante. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we'll be right back. Novacure is a global oncology company working to extend survival in some of the most aggressive forms of cancer through the development and commercialization of its innovative therapy, Tumor Treating Fields. Tumor Treating Fields is a cancer therapy that uses electric fields tuned to specific frequencies to disrupt solid tumor cancer cell division. Novacure's commercialized products are approved for the treatment of adult patients with glioblastoma and malignant pleural mesothelioma. Novacure has ongoing or completed clinical trials investigating tumor-treating fields in multiple other solid tumor cancers. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, and today's episode is brought to you in part by NovoCure. We've been having an in-depth conversation about glioblastoma. We're, we're calling it GBM for short, a type of brain and spinal cord cancer. And we're going to continue learning about this tough and complex diagnosis with Jennifer Cerventi. Let me tell you about her before we get started. Jennifer is a board-certified physician assistant. Uh, Previously, she worked at Staten Island University Hospital for a year as a neurosurgical PA, and then for three years as the neuro-oncology physician assistant and research coordinator. From 2002 to 2007, she worked with the director of neuro-oncology at the New York Presbyterian Hospital Weill Cornell Medical Center in New York City. She joined the University of Rochester Medical Center in 2007 as a neuro-oncology research associate and physician assistant. She has earned her certification as a clinical research professional as well. Jennifer's interests include complementary approaches to brain tumor management and quality of life issues. Her role in the neuro-oncology program includes assisting in the day-to-day care and treatment of patients with brain tumors, spine tumors, and cancer-related neurological deficits. In addition, she facilitates and coordinates clinical trials associated with brain tumor treatment. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Let's start by explaining uh, to our listeners um, what uh, a physician's assistant is and what is your role on the care team, because we want to definitely talk a little bit about the unique care team involved in the care of a patient with glioblastoma. Sure. Uh, So a physician assistant is simply a medical provider who diagnoses and treats illness like a physician does, um, often alongside or under the supervision of a physician. Uh, In the neuro-oncology practice here at the University of Rochester, I support three neuro-oncologists like Dr. Wen, um, and that's with the help of two registered nurses, so that's our team. Um, I see patients both independently and uh, and with the physicians in the office uh, for follow-up visits and for new patient visits. And um, when I'm not in the office seeing patients and I'm perhaps answering phone calls, um, I'm often the first line in responding to patients when they have a question about their care, a question about a symptom or a side effect. Um, and I also, I do a lot of um, support. I, I provide a lot of support to the patient and the family, both in person in their visits and then over the phone. Um, as we talk, I think you'll, you'll see that this is a you know, this is a disease that doesn't just affect, affect the patient, but greatly affects mm-hmm. the support system or the caregiver for the family as well. And so they're often um, my, first, uh, my first line of communication for the patient is the, the caregiver. Wonderful. What a, what, a, what a great and important role to play for patients with this difficult diagnosis um, and, their, and their families. And we're going to get into some of those challenges. But, uh, but I, 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 can you just walk us a little bit more through kind of in an ideal circumstance? What does that cancer care team look like for a patient um, with, uh, with a glioblastoma? Kind of lay out the different roles. And I know this might be a little bit different than maybe treating other cancers. And I'd love to just dig in on that a little bit. Sure. Well, you know, there are, there are actually national guidelines that, uh, that recommend that patients with glioblastoma be cared, by, be cared for by a multi, multidisciplinary team. And so what that means is that providers from all the different specialties who participate in the treatment of the patient should really be involved in the ongoing care of that patient. And so uh, a multidisciplinary team for a glioblastoma patient would ideally include the neurosurgeon who did the surgery and maybe 
removed the tumor or did the biopsy and, and his or her team. The radiation oncologist, which is the physician who plans and delivers the radiation therapy. The neuro-oncologist or medical oncologist, so my team, um, which uh, really is responsible for managing the chemotherapy end of things and then also a lot of the side effect management for the patient. In addition to those three teams, then we're often talking about the pathologist who is responsible for making the diagnosis based on the tissue that they look at, um, the radiologists who read the MRI images or the CAT scan images that we get, and then all of the support staff that go along with that, so the social workers, the nurses, the physician assistants, and the nurse practitioners, all as a team working together to have a really open and shared communication so that we can have a coordinated effort to make sure that the patients are getting the best best possible care they can. That's great. That's great. So, so obviously, could, could potentially be a pretty large team, um, Jennifer. Um, tell us about. I, I, we, we've been hearing more and more about palliative care and the role that palliative care uh, can, can can play for a patient on a on a multidisciplinary team like the one you described. And if you could maybe start by helping our listeners understand the difference between palliative care and hospice care, and then really this kind of you know the, the, this field of palliative care and what that role is. Yeah, well, first I want to thank you for that question because it is a very commonly confused topic or a commonly confused title, palliative care versus hospice care. Um, and the first thing for patients and their families to know is that, that those two words often go together. Palliative care physicians or practitioners are often also hospice practitioners. Um, but what palliative care really focuses on is the treatment and management of symptoms and side effects for any patient with either a terminal or chronic illness. So it may not even be someone with cancer. It may be someone with congestive heart failure or or maybe someone with multiple sclerosis who incorporates a palliative care specialist into their team to really help them manage on their quality of life and making sure that every day they live is as good as it can be. The flip side of that is hospice care, and hospice care is the approach to caring for a patient in the end of their life when we have decided not to aggressively treat the cancer anymore but to strictly focus on comfort. Patients undergoing active cancer treatment can absolutely have palliative care specialists incorporated into their team to help with them with side effects such as nausea, um, pain perhaps, which is rare in a glioblastoma patient, but there can be some patients who are uncomfortable from, from their cancer, um, all the way to mood issues and depression or spirituality or goals of care discussions. Um, mm-hmm. And so having palliative care on our team can really help help the patient um, get more attention to some of the quality of life issues that they may, may be dealing with. Um, I do have to say, as the, you know, the neuro-oncology team, we are sometimes so busy addressing the cancer itself that mm-hmm. we are left with little time to address the patient and to address mm-hmm. their daily quality of life. And so sometimes an additional appointment with another team who can strictly focus on that can be really beneficial to patients. That's great. It's great advice. Um, Jennifer, it's a lot to keep track of for the patient, potentially for the caregiver or the family. Um, you know, obviously great impact on the family with this disease. Um, is there is there a quarterback? Is there somebody who's in charge? Is there, you know, who, who, who's the first call? How, who, who's helping the patient coordinate all of these complexities? Yeah, well, that is the exact term that I actually use when I'm meeting a patient and their family for the first time. And I explain exactly 
to them exactly what you just said. So this is a very confusing time. Uh, patients have been, just been given this, uh, this very scary diagnosis, and there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen. And so what I explained to them is that, in, at least in our system, that the neuro-oncology team is their quarterback. We are the team who is there from diagnosis all the way through the entire trajectory of their disease, and we, don't, we won't be fading in and out like some of the other specialties may. You know, the neurosurgeon kind of comes in and makes the diagnosis and fades out unless we need them again. The radiation oncologist comes in and, and does their, their portion of things and then fades out again. But as the neuro-oncology team, we are there for all of those, uh, all of those uh, questions and answers for them. And really what I tell patients is if they have any question um, and they don't know which team it's for, then it's for us and that we will help mm-hmm. kind of triage that. Um, I would think in most cases for patients who don't have a neuro-oncologist who perhaps are only being, uh, who are being followed locally by a medical oncologist, um, yeah. then they could have that conversation with those different team members and ask someone in that team to identify themselves as the quarterback for them. Got it. Got it. Um, we're getting to our break here, um, Jennifer, but in preparing for the show, we came across a story in Everyday Health, a profile of someone living with GVM. I just want to read this quote and then have you comment on it, and then we'll go to our break. Um, so the quote, so the, the story reads, when Nicole went to bed on May 2nd, 2018, it was a night like any other. The then 31-year-old actress turned off the lights and drifted off uh, to sleep. Um, reminding herself that she had a dentist appointment the next day. But when she woke up, she wasn't in her bed or even in her apartment. She was inside an MRI machine at the hospital. And she says that, quote, I later found out from, from my then fiancé, now husband, that I'd had a seizure in bed, she reports. Uh, I then had two more seizures, one in the apartment and one in the ambulance. The hospital uh, did a CT scan, which found a mass on my brain, and they put me in an MRI machine, which showed a tennis ball-sized tumor. I, I know this, this, this story is not... Um, unusual for patients with a glioblastoma, but certainly how how startling and alarming for for like I said, yeah. the patient um, and and for their caregiver. What do you say to these patients and loved ones when you first meet them with this with this um, really devastating diagnosis? Yeah, you know, there, there's so much to say to them. You know, the, the first yeah. thing that I do reassure them is that they are in the right place, they are with the right team, that we know how to deal with this. Um, the second thing that I talk to them a lot about, um, certainly after we've gone through some of the diagno- diagnosis and prognosis discussion, is, is a little bit cliche, but I think it really rings true here, is that I want every patient and their family to prepare themselves for the worst. I want them to to get everything taken care of from a, you know, a legal standpoint. I want them to get all their ducks in a row, but then I want them to turn that off. And I want them to just assume that they're going to be those, those, those people who, uh, who beat the statistics, that they're going to be those people who do survive this. So I want them to prepare for the worst, but I want them to hope for the best and, and just make that assumption in their everyday life that they're going to do well with this. The other thing that I tell patients a lot, and, and especially caregivers, uh, is that the, the, the journey through a glioblastoma diagnosis is really a marathon. It's not a sprint. And what that means is that, you know, in the beginning, there's so much adrenaline, there's so much drive to kind of figure this thing out and to fix it and to try to, try to be perfect and not miss a beat. 
and none of us can sustain that kind of activity. And so we have to find a way to kind of bring the pace down, to plan for our next steps, to move out of this this crisis period that we're in, and find a way to incorporate this new diagnosis into our life um, and and do that with a a lot of support and Mm -hmm. and really reaching out to their team, um, their neuro-oncology team and other teams Mm -hmm. to help them find ways to do that. Great advice um, and great information, Jennifer. Um, We're going to take a quick break here. We have more to discuss with Jennifer. This is, uh, frankly speaking, about cancer. Our show today is brought to you by NovoCure. We're talking about uh, glioblastoma today, uh, which is a a very challenging form of of, of brain tumor. Um, We have more uh, questions for Jennifer, more to discuss in terms of uh, patients who are dealing with this diagnosis and some of the ways that they can manage um, with and through uh, the diagnosis of a glioblastoma. I'm Kim Chibaldo. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. NovaCure is a global oncology company working to extend survival in some of the most aggressive forms of cancer through the development and commercialization of its innovative therapy, Tumor Treating Fields. Tumor Treating Fields is a cancer therapy that uses electric fields tuned to specific frequencies to disrupt solid tumor cancer cell division. NovaCure's commercialized products are approved for the treatment of adult patients with glioblastoma and malignant pleural mesothelioma. NovaCure has ongoing or completed clinical trials investigating tumor-treating fields in multiple other solid tumor cancers. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're grateful for the support of Novo Cure in bringing you this episode about glioblastoma, a type of brain and spinal cord cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo. We've been having a truly thoughtful and insightful conversation about this rare and complex cancer with Jennifer Cerventi, a neuro-oncology research associate and physician assistant at the University of Rochester Medical Center. Her role in the neuro-oncology program includes assisting in the day-to-day care and treatment of patients with brain tumors, spine tumors, and cancer-related neurological deficits. Um, so, Jennifer, in your work with patients, what are um, the most common concerns that patients, uh, you know, share with you, and and how do you how do you help them cope? I can imagine that um, 
you know, I, I, I know this is obviously a very difficult diagnosis. Um, obviously, folks are going to the Internet. They're not finding great information about, uh, about what to expect and life expectancy. So tell us a little bit more about that, how you have that conversation. Sure. Well, I will say we, we tend to dissuade people from, from Dr. Google. <laughs> Dr. Uh, Google. It's hard to keep people, hard to keep people yeah. off, but often, uh, yeah. oftentimes the patients say they didn't do any research, but their family members might. Um, and then we do ask, you know, we do ask patients and families just to, to, to filter any of that through us at any time so that we can put it in context for them. But I think one of the, the biggest um, concerns that patients have um, with this disease is the effect that the disease may have had on their independence. That's a really big one. Yep. Um, many patients, due to either having had a seizure or having a neurologic deficit now or unable to drive, um, in some parts of the country, uh, like ours in, in Rochester, that creates a lot of isolation. We don't have good public transportation here. Um, certainly, you know, I, I, I make the, the comparison when I'm speaking to patients that if you lived in the middle of Manhattan, it wouldn't be such a big deal. You could still get around. Uh, but that's a very, very big issue for patients. And so what I encourage patients to do when they are having trouble with independence, when they're having trouble with feeling isolated, when they're having trouble with, um, you know, with, with having to rely on other people is to remind them um, of all those people at the time of their diagnosis, all those people who said, please tell me what I can do to help. And people actually mean that when they say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot, mm-hmm. a lot of times they don't, know, they don't know what it is they can actually do to help you. And one of the things that they can do is drive you to and from your radiation appointments, Come sit with you in the afternoon so that your caregiver can get out of the house and, you know, go grocery shopping or get a haircut or have a glass of wine or take a shower. Um, All those simple things that we take for granted, you know, until we have a patient to take care of. And so really rely on those family and friends and, and maybe church communities who have made that offer to help and take them up on those offers. And don't be afraid to ask for that help. The other big concern that patients have is, is about their quality of life. Um, glioblastoma does tend to be a disease that, that affects patients in their, in their upper years, in their 70s and 80s, and so quality of life is something that we take into a lot of consideration when we're talking about therapies for patients and, and, and how we might address the tumor itself. And I think it's important to have a conversation with your treating team about where quality ranks on the scales for you uh, you know, versus your quantity of life, and mm-hmm. also help your team really understand what quality of life means to you, because it's very, very different um, mm-hmm. for every patient. I remember, uh, you know, one patient who didn't feel like her quality of life was good at all unless she could be out in her garden um, mm-hmm. gardening, uh, versus another patient who felt like as long as she could sit in her wheelchair and watch her grandkids play, that that was quality of life to her. Mm-hmm. And so it's important to have that conversation with your provider so that they have a a good understanding of what that means to you. Um, Jennifer, you touched on the caregiver um, experience. I, obviously, a lot of their concerns align with some of the patient concerns that you've just described, but um, they all, you know, caregivers have special needs and challenges and concerns of their own. What do you hear from the caregivers and how do you talk to them and help them prepare and help them cope? Yeah, so in, in this particular disease, the, the burden is definitely highest on the caregiver in terms of um, their day-to-day activities. You know, they have to take everything that they did before and now add, uh, you know, a sick loved one on top of that. And 
and it is different. This disease is different from, you know, a breast cancer or a prostate cancer, for example, because like Dr. Wen spoke about, the location of these tumors being in the command center of the brain makes everything more complicated. And so the caregiver may be dealing with a loved one, you know, a spouse, for example, who is in a wheelchair now because they can't move one side of their body and just figuring out the logistics of that. Or they may be dealing with a loved one whose personality is completely different. So the, you know, the, the, the gentle, kind man they married is now very aggressive and very irritable. And, and, and that puts a whole new layer of complication on things. I encourage caregivers to uh, focus on themselves sometimes. Uh, we spend a lot of time just focusing on the patient, and so I do encourage them to find support, to speak with our social work teams, to let our team know if there's something particular they're struggling with. Many of the big academic centers or the big cancer centers will have support groups for caregivers. Uh, here at our institution, we have a monthly caregiver support group, um, and we, al- we also actually will hold a yearly event on a Saturday where we take that caregiver out of their home. We give them chocolate and chair massages and good food and put them all in the same room together so that they can share their experiences and kind of get some tips and tricks from each other. It is not an easy road, um, and, and, and what we always remind them is that they have to take care of themselves first. It's the, it's the uh, you know, the analogy of the airplane, you have to put your mask on first, your oxygen mask on first, before mm-hmm. you put the oxygen mask on your loved ones. So mm-hmm. if our caregivers aren't caring for themselves, they can't possibly care for their patients. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Jennifer, we're getting to the end of the show. Um, again, we've really talked about how difficult this uh, diagnosis can be on the patient, on the family, very overwhelming. Um, you know, I know we tell folks to start with any cancer diagnosis by taking a deep breath, but what other, what, what tips and advice do you have for folks if, they're, if they are sort of staring down this diagnosis um, in terms of medical care, second opinion, self-care, integrated team, just a few top line tips as a refresher for our listeners uh, as we get to the end of the show. Yeah, so I, I do think it's very important for any patient with this diagnosis to at least once get a consultation with a neuro-oncologist. Not everyone has everyday access to neuro-oncology in the country, and so if you're being treated by a local medical oncologist, um, they are my heroes. Uh, they, they do amazing things, taking care of all yeah. sorts of different cancers, but get a one-time neuro-oncology consult. That neuro-oncologist is going to be willing to follow your case Good. remotely over Good. the course of the next months and years and help out. The other thing I really like to tell people is to to try to continue as best you can to live your life, Um, to not let this disease define you, and to find ways to continue checking off the boxes of the things that you wanted to do and Mm -hmm. accomplish, um, and, and, and to... And to continue to do things that are meaningful to you and not yes. just let every day be about glioblastoma. Yeah, great tips, great advice, um, and, and I think important for our listeners and anyone facing this um, this diagnosis. As we come to the end of the show, uh, I do want to thank NovoCure for sponsoring the show today. I also want to remind folks that at the Cancer Support Community, we have a host of support, a lot of which really ties in to what Jennifer is describing. Um, we have a helpline that you could call at 888 888- 793-9355 for support. 
uh, information, referral, educational resources, other resources. We have a great uh, team of folks answering that uh, helpline who can help you today. You can visit our website at cancersupportcommunity.org to find out about our many resources, about our uh, 47 affiliates across the country where we provide support groups, including for caregivers. Jennifer, like you mentioned, educational programs, nutrition, exercise, stress reduction. We also have a wonderful uh, service called My Lifeline where you can set up a digital community and bring those folks, Jennifer, that you mentioned in the community in and bring them around to uh, help you navigate and help you with the day-to-day challenges. So it's been a pleasure having you on the show today, Jennifer. I want to thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Uh, I'm Kim Tebaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Please check us out if we can be of help to you or your loved one. Uh, This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. And until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. support community.org.